Man, this series on the real has been so good. I, I, I find myself last week, I was like, I am Sarah. I was like, I am that. I have trust issues. I got belief issues. All of these things. I am Sarah. A week before that, I was, uh, I was Moses, right? And I was like, that's me, man. I'm all of these things. And I find myself in this. And I'm so thankful that we're taking a deep dive into who these people are, seeing that they are real people. Because we can look at them from afar and say, there's no way I could ever be that. There's no way I could ever, if they're recording the Bible today, my name would not make it. And we can look at it, and we can get so discouraged sometimes with that to say, there's no way I could ever do those things. So, so I'll just settle back into to just kind of status quo and, and life as normal, and I'll never try to be that. I'm so thankful that we're diving into these great women and men of God that were able to say they really did have some issues. But in the midst of all of that, God was patient in dealing with them. I'm so thankful that he didn't hide how he dealt with them and his frustrations that he had. And I'm so thankful that it gives me hope that if he can do it for them, he'll do it for me. And the key scriptures coming for this whole series comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And, uh, and it reads like this in verse 27. It says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. It said, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. He says, so he, he's picked these things and he's chosen these things. He says, I'm using the least likely of people. I'm using not, not even the smartest of people. I'm using not even the most qualified of people to accomplish what I'm doing. And he sums it all up there with the last statement so that no one may boast. Because I guarantee you, I promise you, we've all seen it happen. The moment we do something good, we say, look at me, right? And so we, we like it. My kids be like, look, Daddy, look what I did. We had a monumental, a monumental milestone in the Pena household yesterday. I sat from the patio as I watched my son cut the backyard. I was like, this is it. Life is now paying off. You know, I was like, all right. This, this is a good thing. And, uh, and then we had to come back, and, and my son, uh, I love him so much, and he's very exact and precise in, in his little nine-year-old you know, way right now. And, uh, and we came back, and I was like, all right, son, so, so do we see any problems with the grass currently right now? And he says, uh, there's some spots that, uh, that it look like I've missed. And I was like, absolutely, there's some spots you missed. And he's like, and my lines are kind of all crooked and all over the place. I said, that's right, buddy. We just go ahead and we just redo it. And so, so we helped him, and we did it. But my son cut the grass for the first time yesterday. Huge thing for me. We're going to save lots of money in the Penny household, right? And uh, he's going to get a nice, good farmer's tan while he's at it. And so, but we see these things happening. God's saying, man, I, I use the lowly. I use the unqualified. I, I use those people to accomplish my goals because guess what? In the midst of it all, we can get pretty prideful and say, hey, look what I've done and look what I've built. And we've all seen with social media kind of exploding and popping off. We've seen these great men of God and we've seen the, the very real issues that they've had as they've come to light and they've been exposed. Just this last year during quarantine, a prominent pastor from one of uh, a Christianity's staple churches fell into adulterous sin. And was exposed for everybody to see. And I guarantee, as you look back at it, he had some real issues that he didn't deal with. And now they're out. And we can look at those things and say, well, if God would use him, man, then surely he'll do something with me. If God will use those people, man, he'll, he'll work through their issues. And there's grace beyond failures. And there's grace beyond all of these different things. If he can still use him, then surely he'll do something with me. And we're diving into scripture today. And we're talking about this guy by the name of David. Look to the person next to you and say, David. 
David. One of my favorite shows when I was a kid was this show called David and Goliath. And, and the little dog would say, Davy, right? And so I love that old school, like 70s claymation, you know, thing. But we're talking about David, a prominent figure in the Bible. David reigned as king of Israel for 40 years. He ushered in what would be called Israel's golden age. For about 80 years, they would say in their whole history of their people that the time in which David kind of reigned and started it, he ushered in what they would call the golden age. And David, we find him in, in 1 Samuel. So we're going to be at 1 and 2 Samuel today. We find him in 1 Samuel. We'll give you a little bit of an overview of who David is. We find him in 1 Samuel, and the prophet Samuel is looking for David. And we see this right here in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting at verse 13. We see this, Samuel took the horn of oil, and he anointed him in the presence of his brothers, him being David. And from that day, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David, and then Samuel went off to the next city he had to go to, Ramah, right? And so we see this happening, that Saul is the king of Israel at the time. Israel complained, complained, complained that they wanted to be like everybody else. They said, Lord, everybody else has a king, but we have prophets. Lord, everybody else has this, but we don't have that. Lord, we want a king. And the Lord said, all right, if you want a king, I'm going to give you one. He gave him Saul. And Saul disobeyed God. Saul did some, some, some crazy things. And no longer was the spirit of God resting on Saul. And so God is now anointing the next king. And he goes and finds a lowly shepherd boy by the name of David. When he showed up to Jesse's house, David's dad, David, uh, Jesse brought all his boys except David. He didn't even think, surely this one, the runt of the litter, the, the one that's out watching the sheep is not the one. And when Samuel shows up to the house, he says, Jesse, you got one more kid? Because the Lord told me to be here, and I didn't miss the Lord. So is there one more? He says, I got David, but you wouldn't want him. And Samuel anoints David as king, the next king of Israel. We see that the next major kind of milestone in David's life is this little story of David slaying Goliath. Man, David makes his, his first entry before the entire nation of Israel as he's defeating them from, this, from the Philistines. They would come and they would oppress them, and, and they set up a champion-type battle and said, if your strongest soldier can defeat our biggest and our best, then, then we'll basically forfeit over to you. And they're at a stalemate. The, 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 the armies are at a stalemate, and David shows up bringing lunch to his brothers, and he hears what, what Goliath is saying. He says, that ain't happening under my watch. He goes out and he slays Goliath. He, he knocks him down with a rock in, in, in the forehead out of his sling. And he runs over and he chops his head off with his own sword. And records it in scripture like this in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 50. It says, so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and he killed him. We see this thing happen as David from there, he gets recruited to be in the, in the king's service playing the harp. Because remember back in, in, in 1 Samuel, a little bit further, the spirit of God has left Saul. It, it's a fleeting thing. And so Saul's facing this kind of depression, this anxiety stuff, and the spirit of God is now resting upon David. And David would come in and he would play the harp and it would soothe him. He would lead worship for Saul and he would soothe him. And David is faithfully serving the king of Israel, Saul, the very spot he's about to take. And all of a sudden, in the midst of all of this thing, Saul begins to despise and hate David and begins to hunt him and go after him and kill him and try to kill him and all these different things. But, but, but David survives, David lives, David does all these things. David is wildly successful in all of his military exploits. They begin to sing songs to David. They say, Saul's killed his thousands, but David's killed his ten thousands. 
Could you imagine being the king of Israel, turning on the radio, and all of a sudden, like, this is my favorite song. Saul killed a thousand, that's me. And then the next verse is, well, David killed 10,000, that's not me, right? And so he's mad, he's angry. All of these things are happening as David is becoming rising in, in his prominence in Israel. Saul eventually dies, he passes off. David takes the throne as king of Israel. And this is when all of these things begin to happen. When David begins to unite all of Israel, as Israel was kind of split in a civil war, David brings it all back together. The Ark of the Covenant had been lost and left out and, and, you know, from battles and all these different things. David brings it back and it says, I'm going to establish a place for this. And we see David doing all of these amazing things for Israel. But the most amazing thing about David is this right here. Samuel's having a conversation. And he's having a conversation with the king of Israel. And this is only recorded two times in Scripture. But it would memorialize David for his entire life. And it would be the thing that we would know him as from here on out. Samuel's having a conversation with Saul. And he's telling Saul this thing. He said, man, Saul, you have messed up. Saul, you have blown it. God told you to do this, and you did the exact opposite. And they're having this conversation. It's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And in verse 14, we'll pick it up. And this is what Samuel is telling the king of Israel. He's telling him this right here. He says, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him the ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. He's telling him, hey, hey, Saul, the people asked for you. God appointed you. But, bro, you didn't do what God called you to do. And the Lord began to do this, this search. And he was looking for a man after his own heart, and he's found him. He's found him. In Acts chapter 13, Paul begins to write it again in verse 22. It says, after removing Saul, he's talking about the Lord. He says, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. It is my goal in life, man. How awesome would it be for scripture to record that you are a man or a woman after God's own heart. I mean, that, that's the title that beats all titles. That, that's the thing that, that, that what else could you get? You are a man or a woman known forever in time after someone who loved God above all else. And he ends with this. Everything I want him to do, he'll do it. Be so obedient. So why in the world, if we're talking about on the real, about issues that men and women of God have had, prominent issues that men and women of God have had, why in the world are we talking about a man who was, who was after God's own heart? Why are we after David? Because David had an issue. We see it rise up two times in David's life. Both times it rises up. It has devastating effects. As God is telling uh, David in, in this whole thing, as he's taking over the king of Israel, as he's taking over the nation, David is praying before God. And he says, God, I'm living in this beautiful house. I'm living in this cedar house. But you, the Ark of the Covenant, the God of all, are living in a tent outside. I will establish for you a house. And the Lord responds back to David. He says, David, thank you so much for that kind gesture. Thank you so much for that. He says, but before we build me a house, I'm going to establish you as a family. David, I'm going to establish your, your kingly lineage. Lord David, I'm establishing you. And David is a man after God's own heart. And we would see these, this, this issue rise up twice in David's life with devastating effects. And we're going to talk about the first time that we see this thing happen. And David's big issue was this right here. It was passivity. David's big issue was passivity. We're just going to go ahead. We'll, we'll let this thing figure it out. 
we'll, we'll just go ahead and see how this thing plays out. You know what? I'm just going to watch from afar, and they can take care of it. They can do that. We see David's big issue is passivity. We're going to be hanging out right here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And there's 40 chapters in the Bible dedicated to David. There's 40 chapters in the Bible dedicated to David's life. Right? Out of those 40 chapters, there are 10 that are dedicated to his, to his, 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 uh, his issues, to, to the, the consequences thereafter. 25% of what the Bible records of David, a man after God's own heart, records his failures and his issues in great detail. We don't see it really recorded anywhere else in Scripture, the details that they, that they really detail and that they go and they write down about David. But we see this happening. So if they're recording it in such detail, that means there's something great for us that we can pull out of it. And David's such a relatable guy. So here we are in 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. And it reads like this. It says, in the springtime, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites, besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So what's happening right here is, is they had been fighting the Ammonites, right? They've, they've been fighting them, and they would take uh, the winter off for war. You know, it just gets too cold. They can't really do anything. So they say, we're going to take the winter off. I don't know if they would say, all right, man, remember where you were standing. You know, they bring people out, like make an X on the ground so we can come back here. When the battle starts again, you're going to start right here. I don't know if that's the way it works, but they would take a break in the wintertime. They would come back in the spring. Obviously, the Israelites were already winning this battle. And right before this, in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and chapter 10, the two chapters right before this, David has had monumental and really unprecedented victories in battle. I mean, Israel is facing an unbeaten record of, of, of victories. They're taking land. This is the first time in Israel's history that they're not being pursued by, by other people, but they're actually taking land. David is experiencing an unprecedented time of prosperity and growth for the nation. David is leading this thing for about five years. David has, has gotten the nation to a place of success. David has gotten the, the nation to a place where we're doing really well. Oh my gosh, this is great. We're prospering as a people. These things are happening. People are writing songs about him. David, look what you've done. David, you're so amazing. David, you're so great. And I'd imagine right here when David is supposed to be off, when the kings are off to war, Joab, his top commander, says, David, we got it, bro. We got it, man. Don't worry about it. We, we, we've got it. The Ammonites, bro, we've besieged the capital city. It's only a moment of time, man. We're just going to wait this thing out. David, you hang out. You've earned it. You deserve it. You, 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 you've worked so hard for this, David. Just go ahead and take this spring off, man. We'll update you if we've got any problems. It says that when the kings are off to war, David stays behind in Jerusalem. Let's keep reading. In verse, in verse 3, this right here, it reads, it says, One evening... David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent messengers to get her, so she came to him and he slept with her. So David is hanging out in, in the temple, he, he's in the palace, excuse me, and he's hanging out and he's waking up about noon about in the evening, right? He's getting up out of bed. And they would take baths in the evening if you've ever taken a, a, a shower by water that has to be, you know, you, you go and you get it and you put it on this giant cistern on the top of the house or whatever. You don't take a bath in the morning because the water's frigid. It's so cold. 
You wait till the afternoon, to the evening time, so the sun has had a time to wash, to warm that water up, so that you're able to bathe in somewhat warm water. And that's what they're doing. They're they're out there, and she's bathing. and And I would imagine this wasn't the first time David had done this. David knew what time they bathed. David knew what he was doing. David gets up, and he sees this lady Bathsheba, and he sees her, and she's bathing. And he goes and he gets somebody. He says, "Hey, man, I need you to go find out who that woman is." Did you go find out who that lady is? What is she doing? What is she about? Who is she? Because I'm very interested. Now, David, being a married man himself, he goes and he sends his his person to go find out who she is. He comes back, and he's very descriptive with who she is. He says, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. So this guy's coming back, and he's saying, David, this is Bathsheba. And he's like, okay, great. She's fine looking. And he says, no, 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 no. Bathsheba is Eliam's daughter. He says, okay, great. Now, Eliam is one of David's top generals. Eliam is one of of David's top generals in his army. And then he comes back and he's like, okay, great. Well, that's fine, Eliam. Yeah, he's whatever. And then he says, but bro, this is Uriah's wife, Uriah the Hittite. This is her wife. And Uriah was one of David's mighty men. It records, it records in Scripture that David had these mighty men that he was rolling around the desert with while Saul was chasing after him that literally risked their life to protect and, and David and to serve him. And he comes back and he says, David, this is Uriah's wife. David, she's been in every military banquet we've had. David, you've been in their house. David, you, you, you know her husband. David, he's out fighting for you right now. David, this is Uriah's wife. And he says, you know what? Bring her to me. And they sleep together. As the story would go, she comes back a few months later. She comes and she says, David, he sends word back to her. David, I'm pregnant. David, I'm with child. And it's yours. I mean, this is, this is crazy news for David. He says this, this one night thing that we had, this is now turning into a, a bigger issue. And David begins to go into this thing of self-preservation. David begins to go into this thing, how do I clean this up? David begins to hatch this plan. He says, you know what, if I can bring Uriah off from the battlefield, I'll give him a break. He can be with his wife. They, they, will, they will do what husband and wife things do when they're away from each other for a while. And, and then guess what? He will automatically think that's his baby. There's no more Povich. There's no DNA test. There's no nothing like that. That will be his kid. You are the father, Uriah, right? And that's how this will be. So he brings him back. He brings Uriah off the battlefield. They come back and he says, hey, Dave, hey, hey David, what's going on? He says, Uriah. You've been fighting great. You've been awesome. How about you go and spend a couple nights with Bathsheba? And he says, what? Okay. And so David goes and he checks on him. And Uriah won't do it. Uriah, he finds him sleeping outside of his house. And David talks to Uriah and he's like, Uriah, what's going on, man? Why are you not being with your wife? And he says, how can I be with my wife when my men are out fighting, sleeping in tents, and I'm staying with my wife? He says, how, how can I do that? And David is staring in the face, the exact opposite of what his character is in that moment. That angers David. And David, he, he, he creates a second night for him. He says, you know what, Uriah? We're going to hang out again a second night. We're going to get you drunk. And so they get, it, they get him to the palace. They get him way drunk. And he goes and he sends him off. Go be with your wife. And there he goes, going to be with his wife. David shows up the next morning. There he is asleep outside of his house yet again. David's plan's not working. David's plan's not working. And he says, what do I do about this? He says, well, I got another idea. David's falling, falling further and further. Remember, a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. A man who who is so sensitive to the things of God. Who desires nothing more than to establish a place for the ark to live. For the spirit of God to rest. 
David, a man after God's own heart, is now finding himself in the midst of this mess. Not only have I committed adultery, but now she's pregnant. I, I, I've created this plan to cover up my own sin, and it's not working. This guy's got more character and integrity than I have. He should be the king. This, is, this seems to be the man after God's heart right now. And David standing in the face of his failure and everything that means that you got to understand too that David is not under the law that we are under. We are under grace. We are under mercy. Jesus has paid for every bit of our sin. David is under the law of Moses. We're in the Ten Commandments. Adultery is one of the ones. Guess what, Bubba? You did. You broke the law. This is what he's under and the pressure that he's feeling. He says, you know what? This is what we're going to do. He sends a letter with Uriah as he goes back to the front lines of battle. And in this letter he writes... He sends it to Joab, his commander there. He says, Joab, this is what I need you to do. I need you to attack the walls there in Ramah. I need you to go after the walls in Rabbah. I need you to go after them. And, and, and it sounds great. It sounds awesome. But militarily, when you're looking at it strategically, it makes zero sense. They had the city besieged. They were already around it. They had already completely surrounded it. There was no need for them to attack the walls, to sacrifice the men that would be needed for that. He says, and when the battle gets the fiercest, when the fighting gets the fiercest, have everybody pull away and leave Uriah there to die. Uriah's carrying off in his satchel, wherever he's at, whatever he's riding on, he's carrying his death sentence in his own hand. Signed by the king with the signet ring symbol on it, sealed up and headed out. And when he gives that to Joab, I would imagine as Joab looks at Uriah and says, bro, what are you doing back? How was that? What did David want? He said, I don't know. He just wanted me to hang out with my wife. Well, that's kind of weird. Don't you know we're going to be back in like a month or two? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. He said, but he wanted me to give you this letter. I'm going to go be with my men. Joab opens that letter. He reads it out. He says, we're going to do what? All right. Orders the battle, and there goes Uriah leading the charge. As Uriah is there, man, it says that the, the, the fighting gets the fiercest in that moment. It's happening there. They pull everybody away. Everybody pulls away. And there he goes. Uriah left alone and he dies word is sent back to David and the messenger that gets it he's bringing back word to David and knowing who Uriah is a mighty man that David had fought with a man of prominence in David's life Joab tells the messenger be careful when you hand this to David his anger may burn so much that he might kill you just be careful when you hand this to David and when he hands it to David the Bible says that David looks in pleasure and he closes the letter David's sin has been hidden now Right now, Bathsheba mourns, and he's able to be with Bathsheba. They're able to marry, and no one knows the difference. They have a baby together. Oh, so early you had the baby together. Wow, that's crazy. No one did the math. He's like, how long have you been married? Four months? That baby's a year old, right? It's like, what are you talking about? No, no, no one did the math, and no one's going to question David. No one's going to question David at all. And they get there, and they get married. And we see this thing marks David. As you read in the subsequent chapters, after this, the prophet Nathan comes to David and tells him this story. He tells him this story. He tells him this thing. He says, hey, there was this rich man that had a bunch of, of lambs or whatever. And then there was this poor guy that really loved his one little lamb. And, and he would he feed it from the table. And all these things would happen. And, uh, and so this rich man had a party one day and didn't want to use any of his, his lambs. So he went and he took the lamb of the poor man. He killed it and he fed it to his guests. And David said, this man will pay. We're going after this man. And Nathan looks at him and says, David, you're that man. David, you took the only thing that Uriah had. David, David, you had the kingdom, you had everything, but you took the only thing Uriah had. And from that moment on, the Bible says that David did not experience a time of peace in his family. 
from that moment on, this is a sword was about his family. Everything that happened, David was still successful as a, as a king, as a country. Everything God wanted to do in that country happened. But David's family was living in shambles. Guys, all of this could have been avoided. A man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. The, the guy that scripture would record, I mean, he did some amazing things. Some incredible things. Had a major flaw, and that was passivity. If he would have just been where he needed to be, none of it would have happened. If he would have just been doing what he needed to be doing, none of it would have happened. If he would have been out to battle where he needed to be engaged with what God was calling him to be engaged in, then none of this would have happened. The city would have fallen. I mean, we would have had Bathsheba with her husband. They would have had different kids. Uriah would have loved David. All of these things, all of it would have been different if not for passivity that set in in David's life. Saying, David, you earned this. David, you deserve this. David, you could take off a little bit. Let them make the decision. David, it's okay. They know a little bit. And we see him settling into this and all sorts of crazy things begin to happen. Guys, if I can warn you about this, man, don't fall into that trap of passivity. Don't fall into to you've earned this, just to, just to settle in. Just to say, hey, man, this is what happened. Because if we can learn from David, a man after God's own heart, when you begin to settle in like that, you begin to compromise in ways you never thought you would. You may accept things, you begin to take things as, as well, that's okay, I guess, I guess that's fine. I guess that's okay. And we see David with a little bit, and it didn't start off with, hey, he and Bathsheba got together. We don't see Bathsheba seducing him. We see David prowling after her. We see this progression begin to happen as David falls deeper and deeper into what he's doing. Eventually, man, a lot of people focus just on the sexual sin that David had, but it ends with murder. I mean, it wasn't just this sexual deviancy that he had. David had some character issues, and David in this moment relied on passivity and said, you know what, they can handle it. And David fell into the trap and got bit and got bit good. We see this thing happen, man. If I can tell you, please don't fall into this trap. I got three things I want you guys writing down on how we can begin to avoid passivity that we take straight from David and what David's done. The first thing is this right here is you have to be engaged in purpose. You have to be engaged in purpose. If you're not engaged with God, if you're not engaging with God, then you're engaged in something else. Right? You, you, you got to be engaged with something. You're either engaging with God, you're in with God, or you're engaged with something else. And so David finds himself not engaged with what God is doing. He's not engaged in that. He's not engaged in what his purpose is. His purpose is to be leading the nation, and David finds himself away from that. A lot of times people will say, well, I don't understand what my purpose is. I mean, at, at the church, the modern church, the way we've made it look, I mean, the only way you have purpose in God really is the way we, we've created it to be in this facade and this, this whole thing is you have to be a pastor you got to be a preacher, you got to be a missionary, you've got to be this, you got to be something in the church. But I'll tell you this, Jesus established what purpose was for each and every one of us. Jesus established it in Matthew chapter 28. When people tell me, well, I don't know what my purpose is, well, let's go to say what Jesus says purpose is. Purpose isn't just serving in the church. Purpose sometimes being a fantastic dad. Man, you didn't have a dad before, you're going to be the best dad they've got. You're going to be an amazing teacher. You're going to be all sorts of great things, a doctor, whatever it is. But we all live purpose according to what Jesus lined it out to be in Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 18. And it reads like this. Jesus says this, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, spirit, uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey Everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Jesus begins to line out what purpose is. 
Our purpose is to make disciples, win people to Jesus. That's what purpose is. It doesn't matter what your occupation is. It doesn't matter where your paycheck comes from. What matters is this right here. This is purpose. Man, we're to make disciples, win people to Jesus. That's what it is. I love the way the message writes this. It says this. It says, Jesus undeterred, the message version of the Bible. It says, Jesus undeterred, went right ahead and gave his charge. God authorized and commanded me to commission you to go out and train everyone you meet far and near in this way of life, make, marking them by baptism in the threefold name, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then instruct them in the practice of all I have commanded you. I will be with you. I will be with you as you do this day after day after day right up until the end of the age. He says, go and train people in this very thing that I've trained you in. And if David would have been engaged in purpose, if they would have stayed doing what God has called them to do, leading the way God called him to lead, none of this would have happened. None of this would have happened. His life as we see it yet again, man, it would have been on a completely different trajectory. God didn't have this for David. This isn't what God planned for David. He wasn't saying, David, I need someone to write about that's got some serious character flaws. You're it. Man, I, I'm going to set you up for failure. Not even close. If David would have been engaged with what God has called him to be engaged in, then he wouldn't be in the spot he was in. Man, we see ourselves sometimes disengaging with purpose. And we find ourselves floating out in, in obscurity. We don't know what we're doing. And, and we don't necessarily know what we're used for. And when you don't know what you're doing, you don't know what your purpose is, then guess what? Then you begin to use, misuse what God has called you to be and what God has, has called you to, to have. And we begin to misuse those things and misappropriate those things. And we're not engaged in what God has called us to be involved in. We're not engaged in God's purpose for our lives. The second thing is this right here on, on avoiding passivity. Is you've got to be correctable. You've got to be correctable. David had nobody around him that could correct him. David had nobody around him that could correct him. This guy shows up, this servant guy, they don't even record his name. He shows up and he does his best to throw out these speed bumps to David. David, do you know what you're about to do? David, do, do you know what you're about to do? This is Eliam's daughter, David. David, Eliam is in the next room. He's, he's plotting the next battle plans. You told him, to, what are you doing? These men have served you faithfully. When everybody else left you after Saul, they stayed. Bro, do you know who Eliam is? And then all of a sudden, this is Uriah's wife, David. Uriah was with you, man. You, you would tell stories about Uriah. He, he, he saved you. What are you doing, David? And David had no one around him that could correct him. We'll get ourselves involved in small group. And we love small group. And man, small groups are the major thing here at Hill City. The lifeblood of who we are. We have some fantastic small group leaders. But a lot of times we want to join into a small group so that we have people show up at our birthday party. We have somebody to pray with us when we're going through things. That we, so that we can have, you know, when we're going through stuff, man, we got people that can be with us. Let's celebrate our wins in life. And we want a community of friends and people. And that's what small group is. Yes, absolutely. But if you never, ever let that person step into a role where they can correct you, then it's all for naught. Then you got a group of friends around you who just love you and they'll make you feel good. But if you have no one in your life that can correct you, you fall into this trap where you say, well, no one can correct me. I'm at the top. What I'm saying is right and what I'm doing is good. And you have this thing and you can justify it in your own mind because you're not correctable. You have nobody in your life that can come to you and say, hey, bro, what are you doing? That's not right. What are you talking about? That's Eliam's daughter. That's Uriah's wife. Bro, what are you talking about? That's not ethical. What are you doing? That's not right. Do you not understand? You have a wife and kids. Why are you doing this? 
Why are you into this? And we won't let those people step into our lives. I had a friend in high school who was not correctable at all. That guy that knows everything. And, and, and you just want him to fail. You know what I'm saying? He's like, all right, go for it. Do that. Yeah, that's good. You just go ahead and do that. And so I, I, was, I was trying to get him to come to church with me, inviting him, inviting him, inviting him. I had a four-wheeler at, at, uh, at the time. I had a four-wheeler. I'd ride around all over the place. And, uh, and I said, hey, bro, you want to come riding with me today? He says, yeah. I said, come over about 545, right? We had to leave for 630 for church. I was like, come over at 545, and then we'll just hang out. And you just be with me with what we do. He said, all right, cool. So he shows up at my house, right? He said, well, let's go riding. So he gets on the back, and, and I keep telling him, hey, bro, hang on to me. He's like, no, nah, I ain't going to do that. So I, I know what I'm doing. I said, like, all right. I said, put your feet on the pegs. He's like, nope, not going to do it. I said, are you kidding? Like, just listen to me. He's like, no, I'm not going to do it. So we're riding, and he's all throwing himself all over the place. And it's hard to ride when he's not with you, when the weight's not together, right? So I keep telling him, please just hang on. He's like, I ain't going to do that. I'm no, I'm no wuss. And I was like, I, I do. and it's just that, that whole thing where you're like, I want to throw you off now. Like, really? I want to see you tumble. Really? I, I want to see you do these things. Really? Yes. So, so we're riding, we're riding, we're riding, and we're, we're about to finish, and I'm headed back to the house, and there's this spot that had all these dips on it, one of my favorite places to ride. So we're riding, I just, man, I gun it, man, we're, we're rolling, and I start flying, foom, foom, foom. and all of a sudden, I hear this sound, and, I, and the back end of my four-wheeler gets a lot lighter, and lifts up, right, and so I was like, whoa, it starts riding different, so I turn around, I stop, and I look, and I see that the dust settles, I see this, this body laying on the ground, and I was like, Oh, my God, that's my buddy. So I, I, I jump off the floor and I roll over there. And if you get hurt in front of me, right, I love you. I really do. But you need to know, like, first aid, like, trauma on yourself, like, be identified where you're hurt or whatever because I will laugh at you. I don't mean to. It's just a natural response for me. I shot my kid twice in the face with a Nerf gun, and I was laughing both times. I couldn't help him. I was like, bro, I'm so sorry. I need to help you, but I can't right now. Just give me a second. And so, so I run over to my buddy, and his foot's up by his neck. And, he, and he's making this funny sound I never heard before. He's like, ah, right? It's like, what happened to you? He's like, you ran me over. And I was like, I didn't run you over. Well, I did, yes, but it was your own fault. He said, I said, what happened to you? He said, I don't know. We were riding, and my foot hit the ground, and the tire ran over my leg and threw me off. And I was like, that's what you get, right? I said, man. I said, I told you, did, did I not tell you, put, no, I didn't tell you, I should have told you, put your feet on the pigs, shut up, you told me, and I was like, that's right, he said, go get your truck, and I said, I'm not going to get my truck, I'm going to get back on the four-wheeler, he said, I'm not getting on the four-wheeler with you again, I said, that's the only way you're getting home, we're not getting the truck, he said, why won't you get your truck, he said, because if I get my truck, my dad would know that I ran you over, <clears throat> and then, no more riding the four-wheeler, <laughs> so I was like, no, you got to get on the four-wheeler, so he gets on, he's all, he's all whatever, and his foot's doing this weird movement, right, and I was like, like a snake, you know, it's like, oh, what is that thing? And so he's like, oh, what are we going to do? And I was like, well, look at it. We'll assess it. Let's check it out, right? So take his shoe off, and immediately his foot goes up. I was like, dang, that's bad, right? So I was like, I got a pair of Crocs for you. Don't worry about it, bro. Put some slides on. We're going to church. He's like, we're going to church. I said, absolutely, we're going to church. They'll pray for you at church. Little did he know I went to a Baptist church. They didn't pray for him at all, right? So it's like, <clears throat> so we show up at church, and we're sitting there, and, and he's Bro, this is like early 2000s. Everyone wore wide leg jeans, right? And his jeans are getting tied around his knee. I'm like, bro, that's not good. I was like, let's hurry up and get you home. Got him home. Next day, he doesn't come to school. Day after that, he comes to school in a boot from like his hip down to his ankle. I was like, what happened, man? He's like, I ripped ligaments in my knee and my ankle. I was like, bro, I'm so sorry, man. Should have put your feet on the pegs. <laughs> I was like, someone told you. He had to walk across graduation stage with that boot on his leg. It's two weeks before graduation. He had this giant boot and all his graduation pictures and stuff. He tags me on Facebook every now and then. So you remember this? No, I don't. No. <laughs> Are we past the statute of limitations? I do not remember that. Can you prosecute me? I do not remember that. No. The third thing is this right here. 
after you're correctable, the third thing is this right here is you got to be repentant. You got to be repentant. We see David the whole time. David's only trying to cover his own skin. David never, ever approached Samuel. David's got this relationship with God. A man after God's own heart. Never comes to Samuel and says, Samuel, I blew it, bro, like bigger than, than, than ever. And I understand what I need to do, but I can't live with this on my conscience. David said, you know what? He opens a tab on his conscience and says, charge it up. And begins to add these things to it. David never repented. Years after that, man, we see that finally Bathsheba has the baby. The baby's already kind of grown. So we're, we're in this thing probably a year when Nathan begins to talk to him. And when Nathan brings it out, David never whispered a word to anybody about this, this baby, how it came about. Nathan begins to tell him, that baby, we know how it came about. And it was in that moment that David was finally repentant. And in God's grace, we see it kind of happen and all these things. And God didn't remove his favor from David. But like we said, the sword never left David's house. They were always engulfed in, in violence. See, us, we live under a different law than David did. Come on, man, Jesus came and defeated sin, death, and the grave for each and every one of us. We have direct access to the Father. We don't have to go to a prophet to say, hey, man, I need to atone for my sins. We need to burn something. we got to set something on fire to make this thing right. We have Jesus that we can go directly to and say, God, look, I blew it. Lord, I, I, have, I have messed it up. Lord, I, I'm in this spot. Lord, I don't know how to get out of it. But what happens is, is when we're in passivity, we'll begin to say, well, I've gone this far. What good is it going to do to turn back now? Well, I, I've already done this. And then we've compounded with this. And then it's compounded with that. I'm so far away that there's no, what am I going to do? I'm so far down this rabbit trail. I'm so far down into what I've done. Not only was I lusting after her, but then I went and grabbed her and found out about her. Then I brought her to me and we slept together. And the moment she told me she was pregnant, I brought her husband to me. And I tried to deceive him into sleeping with her. And then after that didn't work, we see all these things happening where David's not living out purpose. David is simply living in passivity. Oh, just in it. We're just in it now. Whatever happens, happens now. And after that plan didn't work, he says, you know what? I'm going to kill this dude. And after he kills him, he says, finally, I got a little bit of reprieve here. That problem's gone. And he begins to establish her as a new wife. We see this thing, this, this, this pattern that seems to happen as we get enrolled in this thing. If we're not repentant with it, we come back and we say, God, look, I need you. Father, I've, I've blown it. This is what it says right here in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Man, we can come back no matter what we've done. And we can come back and we can say, Lord, look, I have blown it. Lord, I've blown it. Lord, I have messed up big time. We can confess to him all our sins, right? And he is faithful and just to purify us from all unrighteousness. To say, son, daughter, I understand. I get it. I don't, I don't, I don't like it, but I, but I get it. Man, that's gone now. I mean, grace, mercy, love are here for you. There's consequences in the real world, absolutely. There's things, but we are not separated eternally from God's love from us. There's nothing we can do to discount how much he loves us, how deep he loves us. There's nothing we can do to ever lose that. It even confirms that in Romans chapter 8, verse 39. It says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither heights nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Our Lord, there's nothing that you can do that separates you from God's love. And we see even so as David's life goes on, that God didn't look at David and say, you, you dirty sinful man. 
And at the end of it all, David still is recorded after a, a man after God's own heart. As David's heart was finally bent to repentance, and he came back and he says, I blew it. I messed up. Lord, I understand that what's happening here and now is my own fault. God didn't say, well, you dirty man, get out of here. No, he says, David, I love you. Embraced him. And there was consequences to pay, but he didn't separate him from God's love. And David cares nothing about anything else as you read through Scripture than his love with God. He cares about nothing else more than that. Guys, if you're here today, man, I just want you to hear this, that God loves you so much no matter what you've done, no matter what you've walked through, no matter what issues you feel like you have. No matter, no matter all of this thing, you look at David's life and you say, man, well, I, I, David's really got nothing on me. Well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. God still loves you. There's nothing in all the creation that could ever separate you from God's love for you. He loves you. Man, are there real world consequences? Absolutely. Absolutely. But guess what? We don't have to lose out on the greatest thing. The thing that could walk us through that. The thing that could see it through. We don't have to lose God's love for us. If you would stand across the sanctuary. Hey everybody, wasn't that a great message? I know that as we speak, your life is being changed by the word of the Lord. So here's what I want you to do. Take some time to think about it, consider it, pray and ask the Lord how you can apply it to your life today and this week. And maybe there's something that he's asking you to change or do differently in your life. So let's not let this be something that we just watch and then walk away like nothing happened. We're so grateful to be able to hear the word of the Lord. You weren't here in person today, but you're here with us online and that matters. And if you made a decision for Christ today, we wanna know, we wanna know how to come alongside you and how to support you and how we can best pray for you. So please, if you did make that decision for Christ today, text the word DECIDED to 469-606-2684. We can't wait to see you back next week, same time, same place, Share these posts with your friends. Share it on your social media. Blast it out there. Don't be greedy and keep it to yourself. We love you and we'll see you soon. God bless.